are in Christ, who you have made us to be, and help us not to take that for granted. As we come to your word this morning, we come asking for patience with ourselves, but asking for full disclosure into what you'd have us do and how you would have us live in light of your truth. So we ask that once again you would do that thing which is so mysterious to us, where by your spirit you take your truth and apply it to our very hearts. So we thank you for this, we trust you for this, and ask this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you'd open up your Bibles to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. And we're just going to read three verses from here this morning. Today's sermon is called Out of Rank. So again, we've been going with the military theme for all of this. And we all know what happens when you step out of rank. There's trouble. You need to be put back into place. So uh, our verses this morning are 6 through 8. And it says this. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Christianity is not passive. I've said this every week so far the past two weeks, and I'm going to say it again. It can't be. It cannot be passive. And the book of Jude is a perfect picture of that. Because as we've been learning over the past few weeks, the book of Jude is about what? War. It's about war. And, as I said before, I want to say this again, your evangelism will follow your Christianity. So if we are passive Christians we will be passive in evangelism. If we are passive Christians, we will be passive in apologetics. We will leave all of these things up to those people who are much more qualified than ourselves to save our friends. So while they are marching their way toward hell, we are standing by on the sidelines and we cannot do that because as I said before, I'll say it again, Christianity is not passive. Christ was not passive on the cross. He was accomplishing something for everyone in here. He was accomplishing salvation for the entire world, for all that will embrace him by faith, for the forgiveness of sins. I want to read to you all, and it's the parable of the madman. And I've read this in here before, but it's been a while. It says this, Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst with piercing, excuse me, and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him. You and I, all of us, are his murderers. But how do we do this? 
How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it now moving? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns. Are we not plunging, plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need lanterns in light early in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murders? What was the holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe his blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is this not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed will belong to a higher history than all hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern to the ground and broke it into pieces and went out. I've come too early, he said to them. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of man. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars. And yet, they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on that same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem, led out and called to account. He said always to have replied nothing but, what after all these churches now, if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? We live in an age where authority is being eroded every single day. That seems like such a simple sentence to say. And it's easy for us to talk about. It's easy for us to discuss, but it's true. The farther we go on in our lives, the further we slip from having a respect for authority. And this is due to the explosion of postmodernity in every sphere of life. And it's been literally creeping into the church for years now, but it's really been marching in recent days. And these changes have been slow. They've been progressive and they've been slow up until recent years and months. It is the cry uh, for the rewriting of rules and standards set forth by God Almighty. This week I saw a wonderful illustration of this in the Morning Times. I don't know if anyone saw that letter to the editor entitled, A Further Descent into Theocracy. In it, the writer expressed his disgust with the recent suggestion that certain states want in God we trust displayed in their public schools. The gentleman directed his readers' attention to the Establishment Clause and called this attempt to indoctrinate your youth on the back of taxpayers. 
And he stated that, um, as he's written in previous articles, this country was not founded on Christian values. I spent the past recent months um, pointing this out again and again to everyone, drawing everyone's attention to the error in this sort of thinking. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, only two of them were considered less religious, and the other 54 were considered overtly religious. They had something serious to say about God not only giving us this country, but sustaining this country. The further time goes on, the less we want God involved in things, and we've seen that from day to day. Why write such an article? Why do it? Why are there articles like this in every single paper every single day? Why is marriage continually being redefined? Why is gender being redefined and left without definition? Why are our leaders in this nation arguing over ideas which just a few years ago were considered abhorrent? We have one word. Authority. And that's what this passage deals with. Authority and how you and I deal with it. How will we deal with authority? And we see the word authority twice in this passage, depending on the translation that you have. Once in verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, and another time in verse 8, yet in like manner these people also relying on the dreams defile the flesh and reject authority. Authority is something that today seems like something very vile to everyone because we don't want someone else to tell us what to do. We don't want someone else to rule over us. This gentleman expressed his disgust in this article about um, Christian morality, about it being pushed on people. The goal of every person ought to be to be autonomous and to some degree to make a world where each person writes their own rules. This is the idealistic society that people want for us today. I believe what I believe and you believe what you believe and there should be no spillover effect. But we all know that's not true. Because when you believe something, eventually it spills over into my life. When I believe something, eventually it spills over into your life. This is in the political realm, this is in the work realm, this is in every realm in our lives. Slowly but surely, our beliefs collide. And what happens when our beliefs collide? Well, ideally, the thing that we're taught today is we need to back off. And we need to recollect our thoughts, recollect our ideas, and realize that I am the captain of my soul. I'm the one who decides what I believe. I'm the one who decides what's right for me. So what might be right for your family is not right for my family. What might be right for my family, not right for your family. I'm the one that decides that, because we're taught to be autonomous. Our, ki our kids, we are told and taught... You can be anything that you want to be. So we allow them to head down that role. And there are many parents who will testify to the fact they wish they would have taught their kids something entirely different. Because there's no longer a respect for authority, only self-authority. We live in a world where each person is writing their own rules. Where we have to change our rules to suit other people. And if our own rules are too hard for us to live by, well, then we can just change them tomorrow. It's not really that difficult. There's no standard in the world of autonomy. No fixed standard, anyway. 
We can accept rules as they suit us. And if they don't suit us, we can reject them and redefine them. That's why people say, well, that passage of the Bible was for that time, but not for this time. That really has nothing for us today. That's something for long ago. That really doesn't apply to us today. Our children are taught in schools today, in public schools, that they are their own authority and they are the author of their future. And it sounds like some sort of beautiful fairy tale. And most of those kids that have been taught that for the past 30 years are lying flat in their face in debt because they could have the cars that their parents worked hard to have right out of high school. They could have the homes that their parents worked hard to have right out of high school. With no respect for authority or the way things come, they've been taught that they are the captain of their souls. And we've created a society of autonomous adults having no standard for living. And the idea is that each person ought to live how they want to live. And that on that ground, all, pre, all people's thoughts ought to be autonomous, but also they should be neutral. So the thinking is, once again, you live how you want to live, I live how I want to live, and we won't really bother each other. Our ideas aren't forced on one another. And if we can do that, if we can somehow find a way to do that, the world will be a better place. I've never been in a situation where that works. I'm speaking from experience. I've never been in a situation where that works. Ever. It never works that way. Because thoughts have consequences. And those consequences do spill over into our lives. When we believe certain things, the consequences of our thoughts spill over into other people's lives. They always have a spillover effect because we do not live in a world with these sorts of boundaries. I ask everyone, answer this in your hearts, do you honestly believe that the redefining of gender will not affect you? It will. It will. Because your kids and your grandkids are not going to be able to go into a bathroom safely anymore. This is the world we live in. It's going to change the way that you and I have to address people in public. It's going to change the pronouns that we have to use on people so that we respect them and so we are not guilty of a hate crime. Ideas will not be contained. They can't. They won't. Neutrality is a myth. It's a fairy tale. So though the idea of everyone living in whatever way is right in their own eyes may have some appeal, it doesn't work. Because it always comes with the expectation that others will live according to your ideas, to your ideals. I may tell you all that I'm a cat, and as long as I do that in my house, you're fine with that. But the moment I ask everyone else to treat me as a cat, all of a sudden everyone is up in arms. This is the world that we live in today. It's a rejection of authority. Look for in the news and in conversations you have with people, in the paper and anywhere where ideas are communicated, including Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, all of these social media sites, authority is rejected. And the church is not immune to this. And sadly, that's the idea that we have grown to adhere to. We're in this big bubble and we're protected from all this. It's a bubble. It's a bubble. Stuff can sneak in and stuff does. And the church is not immune. Because those who deny authority not only stand in the marketplace spreading their ideologies, they sit in pews. And they want you to reject it as well. Because people want to be able to say, 
Yes, that's the way the Bible says I should live, but that's not practical today. To which we have to say, I agree with God and not you. I don't believe in legalism anymore. I used to. I used to believe that we can be too legalistic about things. That's changed. We live in a changing world. The more and more time goes by, the more and more time I spend trying to conform my life to this because it's the only standard that we have. And it's the only thing where people can say, ah, oh, you screwed up and you didn't do it right. You said to do this and then you didn't do it. And I can come back to it and say, you're right. Spot on. I messed up. I didn't live by my own standard. And ask forgiveness and conform my life once again to the scriptures. Historically, it has always been a problem when authority is rejected. We're going to look at two historic examples this morning and one contemporary example. And it's going to play out like this. The angelic rejection of authority, a regional rejection of authority, and a contemporary rejection of authority. So first off, we have the angelic rejection of authority. This is right from our passage. And it says this. Follow along with me up here. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. Excuse me, until the judgment of that great day. So the question is, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, before I go to the passage and read it to everyone, when we see their own position of authority, we think of that in some way as uh, the authority that has been given to them. And in a way, that is exactly what it means. Um, but a little bit more in depth, what's being said here is, an authority gave them their position. So, in our occupations, we have a particular position that's been given to us by an authority. So the angels had a particular authority that they tried to usurp, and they did not stay within that. I'd like to read to everyone from a couple passages today about the fall of Lucifer and his angels. You don't have to go there. I'm just going to read this because I have some page turning for everyone, and it's too much for me to put up here. So if you'll just uh, listen and hear these passages, it says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. I'm going to read the next one real quick just so I can get the full idea for everyone here. It's from Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So rebellion does not start in the garden. It starts in heaven. This beautiful guardian angel, Lucifer, the most beautiful of all creation, decides he is going to ascend above God. He's going to make himself like God, thereby rejecting authority. Well, we're told there's trillions of angels, and a third of them followed Satan into his rebellion, followed Lucifer. And they were all cast down and cast out because they would not stay in the position that God had given to them. Lucifer wanted to be above God. And you know what's amazing? What's amazing is, in the Gospels, here we have Satan once again. And what's he say to God? If you are the Son of God, bow down and worship me. What does he want to do one more time? Rise above God. But he can't do it. Christ knows the plan. Christ knows it. It means their designated positions given by the authority of God, they went out of. God gave them their positions, they rejected them. And they were cast down in the chains to be held, and now they are at work here on earth, still trying to gain rule, but never again to ascend to heaven. So not only do we have this angelic rejection of authority, we also have this regional rejection of authority. And this is a very important point. God gave us all positions here on the earth that we're supposed to stay within. This is the way we're supposed to live life. And when we do live life in this way, life is beautiful and life is blessed. Let's look at this verse from Jude. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. I want to read to everyone this passage from Genesis chapter 19. Once again, I did not put it up here on the screen. I did put this visual up here for everyone to kind of get a sight in their mind about what was happening. It says this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square, right out in the open. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That's the biblical sense of know everybody. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do with them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This 
fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot, and they drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot back into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were married to his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he came to his son-in-law's jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away by the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, the Lord being merciful to him, the Lord being what? Merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor, and the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, grew ground, but life was behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, a smoke went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is serious. God gave them particular positions to live in, just like he does us. And they were going not only beyond that, they were about to do this treacherous thing. Lot tried to stop it. And what happened? They underwent a punishment of fire. This is sad. It's not a passage that we read from often. It's kind of one of those passages you feel uneasy about when you're there. You're like, oh, boy, this seems awful harsh. But it's a rejection of authority. And when children reject authority when they're younger and nothing is done about it, then they reject authority when they're older and there's nothing that can be done about it. And then what happens? We have the contemporary rejection of authority. The contemporary rejection of authority. And it says this in Jude, verse 8. Yet in like manner, like manner to whom? The angels and the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Notice several things that they do. 
First off, they rely on their dreams. Problem being, God doesn't give all dreams. Uh, some people have dreams. They say, ah, I received a, a dream from the Lord tonight. Be careful. Check it against the scriptures because all dreams do not come from Christ. Some dreams come from Satan. Some dreams come from our own sinful lusts and passions. They seem so real. These people have no checkpoint. They don't care. And in so doing, they defile the flesh. Literally, they make themselves dirty before God with the things they do, the things they think, the things they say, the way they act. They reject authority. God says we should do things this way. People say, no, not anymore. Not anymore. That's not the way things are to be done today. We're moving toward 2020. Things are completely different. We need a new moral, a new ethic, a new standard. Who decides that? We don't ask that question. When people say the Bible ought to be rejected as a standard for living because it is dated, we say, what will replace it? What will replace it? Well, now we have experience. This is what Dawkins teaches. We have experience from evolution. Things that have worked that seem more moral than this book. So let's not do things this way. Let's do things as experience shows us should be done. The problem is, you've had one experience, you've had one experience, I've had one experience, and they've all led to the same place. So which one do we choose? Well, we choose whichever one the most people have had the best luck with. You see what happens? We become gods in and of ourselves. We are the ones who decide what's best. We are the ones who redefine marriage because we're going with experience. We're going with what we've dreamt of. We don't care about what Scripture says anymore. We want to do what feels good, what is right to us. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. By glorious ones, this is a difficult translation because it's only used here. And all the studying that I've done on this passage over the past few weeks has led me to this point. Literally, are blaspheming the idea of God-given authority. So some people say this glorious ones means God's government that he has given to man to rule over, to bear the sword for evil against those who are evil, to bring about righteousness, for good for those who are good, to bring about justice and righteousness. And we say, well, maybe. Or maybe it's the angels. They, they blaspheme this order that God had given to the angels. Well, that was a little bit too harsh. We don't really like that, God. Maybe. No, but in context, in the context of what's being said here, it's the order of authority which God has given to you and I. God has said, first, you're responsible for you. Amen? Our nation was founded on the idea that the only way the Constitution is going to work is if we are responsible for ourselves. We don't need the government to provide all of our housing and everything for us. We're supposed to be responsible enough to provide for ourselves. The only way the Constitution works is under a, a group of people, over a group of people, that can generally take care of themselves, that can take care of their children, that can make sure we don't break laws. The Bible is very just when it comes to these things. What do we have today? What does this look like? The people that defile the flesh, that reject authority, that blaspheme the glorious ones. 
and God we trust. It's on our dollars. Yet people are screaming in the streets for what? What are they screaming for? To get rid of God. To get rid of Him. We don't need Him anymore. We don't need some trite idea of some majestic being that dishes out all of these things to us. We don't need it. We don't need God. We don't need His Word. We don't need anything else to go on but our experience. So thereby in these things, they reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones, they defile the flesh. And what do we do about it? I used to listen to talk radio a lot with my boss in the work truck. And he listened to all these very conservative guys and I'd listen to all this stuff coming at me left and right. And the question is, yeah, they'd say all this bad stuff. This is happening, this is happening, this is happening. But what do we do? What do you do with something like that? What do you do about it? Scripture tells us clearly what to do about it. That should be the question that we always ask when we hear sermons like this. Things are bad, but what do we do? What's my job? What's my role in this? How can I submit myself to a higher standard so that things can be different? It says this. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments. Destroying arguments is what evangelism and apologetics do. They destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. Because we hear a lot of those today. They're in our local paper. We used to think, oh, in small town Waverly? Nah. In small Sarah? Nah, these things aren't coming. They're here. And we need to act. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does this mean? It means when it comes to all these decisions that are coming up before us, we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Christ says don't, we don't. Christ says do, we do. Well, what happens if some of our rulers tell us to do differently? What if our rulers tell us to do what God commands us not to do, or not to do what God commands us to do? We appeal to Scripture, and we reject authority outside of Christ. Christ is the highest authority. When we reject Him, we lose everything else. This is why our society has taken the turn that it has taken. If we had time, I would take you through dozens and dozens of quotes from 54 signers of the Declaration of Independence that shows you and I very clearly and pointedly that God and Christ, that the whole idea of the Holy Spirit and the Triune Godhead was taken into such thoughtful consideration when compiling our founding documents that anyone who says different is a liar. We need to apply ourselves to these things my friends and I care about you all and I really really want a, a, a beautiful future for our children and our grandchildren nieces nephews friends children we want a beautiful glorious future we want them to be able to live by a standard that changes society and gets us back to the laws of God the only way to do that is to submit to them ourselves 
Would you please all join me as uh, we pray together? Lord, as we think of your scripture, we think of the positions that you've called us to be in. We think of the glory and the wonder that it is to be in your presence. We think of the world that we live in today and how dark it seems as though things are becoming. It does feel at times as though we're losing. It does feel at times as though evil is gaining ground. And it does dishearten us and it does make us weary and tired out and burned out. And we don't want to fight. We want to sleep. We want to close our eyes. We want to wait for your return. God, forgive us. Help us to go to battle and help us to go strongly. Help us to take every thought captive to obeying the commands that you've given to us. Help us to live lives that so richly illustrate your word. They really do make other people stop to think. Help us in our words to be reverent and to draw attention to you in any opportunity you give us. And Lord, as authority is continually being rejected, help us not to be found among those who reject authority. Help us to submit to the governing authorities that you've given over our lives, starting with ourselves. Help us to live according to what is right and wrong, according to your word, and help us to have some self-rule happening here. And apply only to each standard outside of that as is needed. And Lord, above all else, help us to see you overseeing and organizing and orchestrating all things for this glorious return for which we all await. So Lord, would you just help us to be strong, help us to be faithful, help us to love genuinely. We thank you for this. Lord, we think of Fairburn this very hour. And we think of just the struggle that she's um, in, even currently, back in the hospital, needing renewed strength. And God, would you please just touch her body? Would you please bring healing and restoration? God, we think of the many physical needs that are brought before us. We think of Judy and, and her struggle with cancer. We ask you to be with her and give her renewed strength. We think of Linda, who has now found this growth, and ask that you please be with her. You would heal her. Lord, we think of Amanda and her biopsy, such a young girl, and ask you, please be with her. Lord, that these would be opportunities for your presence to be known in their lives. We think of Henry and uh, just him being a little under the weather today and just ask you, please be with him and lift his spirits. We think of those who are not able to be with us today for worship for various different reasons and ask that you, please bless them, strengthen them, and bring them back once again into our fellowship. Lord, we thank you for all that you have given us. We ask these things in Christ's precious name.